There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart Every Disney movie ever I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is Megan Bojarski and in this episode, we are going to learn about the great circle of life, uh, but not maybe in the way that you might think or associate that term with a different Disney movie, but I think it just applies as well here uh, as we go into the woods to follow the story of a young deer. As described by J.B. Kaufman in the excellent book, The Walt Disney Film Archives, the animated movies, 1921 to 1968, quote, Bambi is not an ultimate destination, but a distinctive, rarefied side road carefully set apart from the main highway of animation history, uh, which is something we will certainly talk about more as we get into it. Uh, and joining us today is a uh, friend of the show, Elizabeth. Uh, she is a PhD candidate in animal science. Uh, so we thought this would be a a good episode to bring her in because the animals here are a little bit more realistic than uh, the elephants and Dumbo that we were talking about last week, <laughs> I think. Uh, so Elizabeth, welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Very excited. Uh, so real quick, because I've been, I've discovered in doing this project that uh, Megan is not super familiar with these movies, where a lot of them are ones that I had seen ad nauseum almost as a kid. So if you want to give your, your overall Disney history and then whatever experience you have with Bambi up front, I think that might be helpful. Right. Well, I mean, I remember watching Bambi as a kid. As a, I mean, I'm an animal science PhD researcher now. And even as a kid, I loved animals. So I was always drawn to like the animal side of animation. So I loved Lion King um bambi balto i know that's not disney but <laughs> <laughs> any animal mo centered movie was one i probably gravitated towards um and this one I, as much as i feel i saw it as a kid there were a lot of things that i realized in rewatching it i've forgotten quite a bit about um but some of the songs kind of stood out to me just I had forgotten them, but they were, as soon as I heard them, I thought, wow, I absolutely have this in the back of my mind a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and similar for me, like I grew up on Disney movies a lot, but this was one I, I, I may have only ever seen in full one or two other times. I don't remember if we owned Bambi on VHS in part because my mom found it too difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. um, and I think being a mom would have only exacerbated that because my mom certainly is one of those people that has like in you know not like she can watch a war movie and not bat an eye but like the minute somebody like looks meanly at a dog in a movie she's like uh, this this might be too much mm -hmm. uh, so i've sort of inherited a little bit of that but in so you know i was surprised about how much of this movie i didn't remember except for some like key moments especially early on 
Uh, and Megan, was this one that you have memories of watching as a kid or was this like all new? I don't know that I ever watched this movie. Um, I feel like I say that literally every episode. I grew up in the 90s and I watched the ones that came out in the 90s. Um, I don't know if it was just because they hadn't released them from the vault in a time that made sense for me or not. But I knew the big scene of Bambi trying to find his mom. Although I, Mandela affected it into believing that he found his mom and like was crying over her body. I thought that was a scene. It's spoiler alert, not. Um, so I don't know that I've ever seen this. None of the songs were familiar. Uh, this was surprisingly the least memorable or the least remembered movie so far. Uh, I, I genuinely don't think I've ever seen this one before. Well, and that's because you've already forgotten about The Reluctant Dragon. Um, <laughs> oh, my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, which, which is fair, because, you know, I think even Disney tends to sometimes forget that that movie exists. That's true. Um, but but we'll, we'll talk about all of those feelings as, as we get through it. Um, you know, starting with sort of the background of the project, uh, Bambi, A Life in the Woods, a 1923 book by Felix Salton. It was translated into English uh, and published by Simon & Schuster in 1928. Uh, so it is very like contemporary sort of to this movie's, like the idea of turning it into a movie came relatively quickly uh, after it was published as a book. Unlike, you know, Snow White has like a hundred year history before film exists. Um, and so in 1933, Sidney Franklin, who was a producer and director at MGM, had purchased the film rights to the book, intending it to make a live action film, which is, I mean, that is a crazy idea um, <laughs> to try to get all these animals. Like there's no people. Well, I mean, there's no on screen people in the final version of this movie, but I can't imagine trying to make a live action film in the 1930s with just like live animals running around. Um Later on, he sort of decided that it would be better as an animated project and brought it to Walt Disney, uh, as the story goes, uh, in the fall of 1933. And then uh, as Snow White came about, one of the many, many things that Disney spent that Snow White money on was officially buying the the rights to Bambi. Um, and Disney himself said that Sidney Franklin brought, brought the book himself said that we had to make it and he wanted to have something to do with it uh so they gave him like a thank you he's thanked in the opening credits of the movie uh which i didn't know who that was when i was watching it i was like oh maybe that's the original author but no it's the uh mgm producer who bought the rights before walt got them which is funny because um, it's literally like a live action version of the reluctant dragon hey i found a book you need to do it <laughs> Maybe that story is based on based on Bambi. That's <laughs> or the, true. the production behind Bambi, because that had happened before The Reluctant Dragon was even an idea. Um, which leads me right into the next thing I was going to talk about, which is Bambi was meant to be the second movie after Snow White. Um, but it was pushed off in favor of other projects, which became, you know, Pinocchio and Fantasia and The, the Reluctant Dragon and, and Dumbo. Um it had been mentioned in the press as early as 1937, which is really early. We've mentioned it a couple times as sort of being in progress. Um, but that's sort of the the origin of how it came. But of course, you know, there's, especially now, like we, we, we've sort of been keeping an eye on copyrights. I know, Megan, you have a, a note about <laughs> the current copyright status of Bambi at this point. 
Yeah, so there was this super complicated legal battle that had to do with essentially the book's author's daughter believed she had the rights and Disney thought they had the rights and it had to do with international purchasing and and all of that. They finally settled it, uh, but it kind of complicated when the movie came into the public domain. But it has. Uh, Bambi came into the public domain in the U.S. on January 1st, 2022, which, of course, as soon as I read that, I went, oh, God, now we're going to get a Bambi-themed blood and honey. And sure enough, uh, according to Wikipedia, on November 21st, 2022, they have they announced a live action horror film titled Bambi the Reckoning. Uh, in development for ITN Studios and Jagged Edge Productions. Uh, It will be about Bambi getting revenge for the death of his mother. And I am so... I'm going to watch it. Uh, Just, (laughs) you know, look, as far as I'm concerned, our Halloween special has to be Blood and Honey, as bad as I'm sure that movie is. Uh, But I don't know that we needed that. That being said cocaine bear was a lot more successful than a bear about a movie about a bear eating cocaine should have been so maybe there are people looking to see bambi just gore all of the hunters i don't know um i i find it a weird way to go uh but ironically bambi has been connected with horror movies a lot um we're gonna talk about that a little bit more in its legacy but a lot of that has more to do with the book than the movie The book is very violent. Um, You know, in the movie, we definitely get that kind of, like, life and death stakes. But in the book, for instance, a rabbit that we think Thumper was based on is attacked by a bunch of crows and left to bleed out and die on the forest floor. Uh, Bambi's fight with the other deer is much worse. Um, We see all the hunters... And the idea that man is inherently evil is much stronger. So instead of just seeing like, oh, man does things we don't understand, which is kind of where the movie went, the book literally has a deer that is uh, Faline. Is that how you say her name? Faline? Faline. 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 Yeah. uh, Faline's twin brother in the book. goes missing and it turns out he was adopted by humans so he's like oh humans are amazing the man is wonderful and then he gets shot to death because turns out just because there's one good human doesn't mean that they're all good uh it's just it's a very brutal book uh which has a lot to do with its political implications it's actually deeply tied into kind of the rise of anti-semitism and the fears of the nazis uh which is super complicated But yeah, so the idea of Bambi as a horror movie isn't actually that far off from the source material, as weird as it is to say. Plus, Bambi has the same motivation as Jason Voorhees. So, like, I I get that. Like, I understand it. Like, more so than the Pooh thing, which seems like out of a total left field. Like, I don't (laughs) understand how to reconcile that character with the horror genre. Like I said, at least Bambi has a grievance and That's like fair. there's like like revenge is an easy sort of you know plot thread to tie into horror. So, Elizabeth, uh if you happen to know, how easy would it be for a young deer to gore someone to death with his antlers? 
feel like if you're in close quarters and they've got antlers and hooves, they could do some damage if you have nothing else on you. Okay. <laughs> I, th- I, I think, I think they, that works. They could do some damage. <laughs> Those antlers. <laughs> then I think that works for a nice slasher movie. We've got yeah, a few different the hooves, the, the we antlers. We have to ignore the fact that a lot of hunters would have a gun, probably. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure we'll have, like, Thumper with a gun on yeah. the side. Like, he I mean, stole it from the hunter. on their side. They could... <laughs> Some oh my god, yes. You gas all the hunters right. with the skunk. Exactly. Thumper steals their guns and Bambi fights back. And I could definitely Bambi see that. Bambi was star. Turns out it's flower. <laughs> it writes itself. Right. I mean, this is... I think we could be the writers for the, this, the slasher film. <laughs> yeah, so uh, if, if you feel like uh, you need extra writers for that uh, Bambi the Reckoning... We've got some ideas. Um, what I find so funny is it has that super violent angle. And then it has some really like nice, sweet domestic angles. I mean, so much of it is about like parenthood and love and, and all of that. Uh, even the owl, who is basically what I thought Grumpy would be in Snow White, is what the owl is. Uh, who's just like telling everybody to shut up and leave him alone. Uh, apparently, that's all based on Disney. Uh, just like Mickey Mouse, they used so much inspiration from that man. Uh, when they were building the Burbank studio, so the legend goes, Disney's daughters would just scream. Uh, they, they thought it was fun. They liked the echo, to be fair. I would do the exact same thing. Uh, and so Disney would always shush the girls and tell them to be quiet. And apparently that's where the owl's characterization comes from. From Disney telling his daughters not to scream in his new studio, which I find hilarious. Well, and and it's funny, too, because we have the owl and then we had in Fantasia, the wizard is supposedly based on Disney and him like walking in on the animators <laughs> doing all kinds of nonsense and him sort of like having to like bring them back in line. So it's it's sort of funny to see this like author, authority figure <laughs> Disney kind of worked into some of the movies that we've covered. How aware was he of his inspirational role to the writers? Well, he knew he was Mickey Mouse. uh, He was the voice. And apparently sometimes the writers would just go to him and they'd be like, give me a perplexed look. And then they would write or draw it based on him. I doubt he was as aware of the others. That being said... Uh, as much as I didn't think we'd ever bring up Reluctant Dragon again, the fact that every time, uh, oh man, I can't remember the guy's name, the, the guy with the story idea, every time he was annoying, one of the artists would draw a caricature of him, and maybe that was another way of them showing, like, haha, when Disney's annoying, we'll just caricature him, too. Uh, um, Robert Benchley, by the way, just to... Thank you. Just to try to get that name in our heads. We couldn't remember his name while we were recording that episode. So the chances of us remembering it after that were slim to begin with. Oh. Make up a new name for the character. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's playing himself. So we can't oh. even. <laughs> uh, in that movie anyway, he's playing himself. Um, <clears throat> so and because Bambi took such a long time in production, we wanted to sort of recap what was going on in the world uh, during this time. And so, you know, while the U.S. had stayed out of World War II for a long time, 
things, the impact of the war uh, going on in Europe was felt long before, you know, December of 1941. Uh, and so by the time Bambi had released, uh, you know, they started production on it in like 1937. And then, you know, by its release in 1942, a lot had changed. Yeah, so it just kept getting pushed. And the legends go back and forth. Uh, some of them say it was Walt's personality. It was him getting ensnared by a new idea like he did with Fantasia. Others say that they just said they needed more time and they gave it the time it needed. Um, but it was a lot of time. Uh, for instance, it was introduced in 1937, but by the end of 1938, apparently Walt had stopped attending story meetings for Bambi altogether. So he gave up on it, or he gave it to the animators, I'll say, very, very early on. And then the world fell apart. Um, world War II started on September 1st, 1939 in Europe. This was a major reason that previous films were not making enough money, which was a huge stressor for this movie. Uh, again, January through May of 1940 was when Disney moved the Burbank studio. Tensions rised. Again, in 1940, Disney makes it a publicly owned company, which led to our favorite subject, the Disney strike of 1941. That was in May through September. They finally seemed to kind of be getting back to normal, although they fired about half of the company. And then December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor attack. The U.S. joins World War II and the military makes a home at the Disney Burbank studio. Long story short, it was a completely chaotic period. And through all of it, they were making a lovely movie about some deer. <laughs> yep, and we'll talk a lot more about uh, the Disney Studios involvement and the military sort of takeover of the Disney campus. Uh, not in our next episode, but in the episode after where we'll cover uh, Victory Through Air Power, which is Disney's uh, propaganda feature film. Uh, so we'll be talking more, a lot more in depth about this, but we wanted to make sure that we sort of gave the the background for, you know, the context around Bambi's production and release. And in Europe, specifically, the book Bambi was seen as a warning against cultural assimilation with a keen message against anti-Semitism. So uh, Hitler banned it in Germany. You could not read this book. I mean, apparently very dark and violent book about, <laughs> I was going to say this, this sweet book, but uh, this dark and violent book about life in the woods uh, because Hitler was worried that it might give you some ideas that like maybe we shouldn't treat Jewish people this way. And so all of this was kind of going on and it's it's interesting because Bambi is not, you know, even among Disney movies, Bambi is not one that calls to mind political commentary, <laughs> but uh, it's very much a part of the story in a, in a weird way, maybe. Yeah, so there's a lot of debate over that, but it was written by a Jewish author, which was also part of why it was banned. But one of the main kind of themes was that the Nazis were man. They were the ones that were just coming in and destroying everything. And even if you were taken in by a good Nazi, they other Nazis would still turn on you. All of that made sense. But they also were adding layers that were like, hey, even if you're not a Nazi, you can also be a terrible person. So there's definitely those political layers that were absolutely stripped out of the vast majority of the movie. Um, and I think part of that can be seen in the production. Uh, so again, the rights were bought in 1937. 
The writing was continued until July 1940, by which time the film's budget had increased to $858,000. It was somewhat like Snow White, one of those projects that just kind of kept taking money. Uh, By the time Bambi was released, nine years had passed since it had been first discovered and introduced to Walt, five since he bought the rights, two since the writing was completed, and they were changing things the entire time. So whereas we might kind of think when we say that Bambi was passed over that all of the workers were on other projects, it was really that they spent all of that time, at least in some portion, working on this project. And it was a chaotic but really impressive uh, production. You definitely see a lot of those kind of technical feats that we were talking about in Snow White and in Pinocchio that we had started to see kind of fade away from Disney in the last couple of movies. Yeah, it's really interesting because in my mind, when I was like putting the original list together of doing all these movies in chronological order, I was like, man, Dumbo and then Bambi, that is like a one-two punch of just like sad animal movies. (laughs) And, And it turns out that like they're actually completely different. So we talked a lot last week about how quickly they produced Dumbo. Um, And I think I'm trying to find it in the notes, but Megan, you had a stat around the number of drawings that they did between the two movies, relatively speaking. And as similar as they feel to me in in my memory of watching them as a kid, especially uh, in terms of the stories, the production could, it's like night and day different. They're total opposites. Yeah, so uh, that stat, uh, according to a Tor article, uh, Bambi animators typically created 8 to 10 drawings per day. That's not very much when you have to have literally thousands to millions. Uh, Dumbo animators, who were working at the same time, were able to create about 120 to 140. So, I mean, that's a massive difference uh, just because of the depth of kind of description and detail work in those animals yeah and we talked a a bunch last week about dumbo and how part of why dumbo was successful you know at least financially for disney was because they like locked in what the story was they had all the scenes like there aren't really a lot of deleted scenes for dumbo or things that were changed too late into major things that were changed too late into production there's always there's always something but you know the the animators were talking about how like it was like the one where like they just like didn't make mistakes because they were moving so quickly and they had everything planned out and they didn't make a lot of changes. Whereas Bambi is like, feels more like an iterative process where they were working on it and working on it and trying a few different things. And, you know, uh, they dropped a bunch of, there's a bunch of deleted scenes, which again, like as far as I know, Dumbo doesn't have any deleted scenes because they just, they deleted them before, before, uh, you know, pencil was ever put to paper basically um you know and so you had uh frank thomas uh milk call ollie johnston and eric larson who are four of the nine old men um who are kind of like the nine chief animators at disney uh they basically worked on bambi from 1937 all the way through 1942 they would occasionally work on different projects or come in and you know consult on other things that were being done but they basically like kept the bambi production alive through that entire period um and before they moved to burbank at the hyperion studio that team was in a completely separate building uh where they could work completely interrupted i think part of that is maybe because of uh some of the (laughs) 
some of the non-employee uh, creatures that were brought in to aid the production, maybe, uh, that we'll talk about. But, you know, it wasn't until they moved to Burbank in 1940 that they were sort of reintegrated into the rest of the studio. So it really... And, you know, out of sight, out of mind, like, it almost feels like, you know, Disney, like, Walt, it's not like he forgot that they were making Bambi, but he certainly was a lot more hands-off than he was compared to especially Snow White, Pinocchio, and Fantasia. Yeah, I definitely think that with this one, we get, you know, Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, as we've said before, were Walt's vision brought to life. And there was a lot of magic in that. And with this, there was kind of a magic in Walt's lack of presence. That all of those other amazing creators were able to put something completely different uh, kind of out there. And the only thing that you really see between them is how important the technology was. I don't know about you, but when I was watching this, I kept thinking about the multiplane camera. Because, you know, they've got those crazy uh, watercolory kind of backdrops and you've got all of these different layers and characters and... It had to have been so helpful to be able to say, okay, you over there are working on the animals, you're working on the background, because doing it all together would just be impossible, even in the seven years or whatever that they were building. Yeah, the, when I was uh, watching it the other night to prep for this, my first, my literal first note was return of depth, <laughs> uh, because we hadn't really seen, like there's some of it, there's a decent amount of it in Fantasia, um, but like, it really took me all the way back to Pinocchio and that opening Pinocchio scene where you kind of, f- uh, fly over the town and like going through the woods and seeing the, all the different trees and the plants. And then the little, you know, like there's a moment where you see Bambi and his mom when he's young, like kind of in like almost like a cutout of all the bushes mm-hmm. and things. And I was like, that is just like, an am- it's a beautiful drawing. Like, regardless of what else is going on in the story, it's just beautiful to look at. Yeah, I, it's funny. I I put a lot of focus on those credits because I know they were such a contentious issue. So I was paying attention to those. But my first thought in Dumbo was, wow, the animation is so much flatter. And my first thought in this one was, wow, the animation is so much better. Uh, And again, as we discussed last week, I don't think that Dumbo was necessarily bad, but it certainly didn't have that depth and and emotionality to the drawings that is absolutely here with Bambi. Um, Yeah, it's almost like, you know, I'm not one of these people, but there are people out there who make the distinction between like a movie and a film. (laughs) And it's almost like Dumbo is a cartoon and Bambi is an animated film. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it, it's almost that distinction. Um, so Elizabeth, I have a question for you. That's going to segue us into Megan's next note. Okay. Have you ever watched a deer being born? Not born, but I have, I'll guess, I guess stumbled across a newly born fawn and like, just just laying on the ground because the moms will often leave them for hours at a time between nursing because if the mom's just there constantly they'll drink until they're sick and so the mom has to kind of leave and come back to kind of meter how often the fawn is drinking so she'll kind of park them in places um and so like they'll just huddle until their mom comes back and I have been in an instance where I was just walking through some grass and I almost like stepped right over one because I just didn't notice it was there. 
Um, so I haven't seen the act of a <laughs> of a deer giving birth, but pretty close to that, I guess. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Like I, I, I can't imagine how. Qu- I mean, I guess it's it's very sleepy, but I was like, I yeah, can't imagine how they're quiet sleepy. You'd have to be walking, but I think so. they're just like their instinct is to be quiet and still, just like a rock, so you don't notice it's there. <laughs> Which I feel like we do see in this, like, I feel like that's, the the movie feels accurate mm-hmm. uh, to a certain, to a certain degree in, right. in, that, in that instance. Like, even when you first meet Bambi, he's still until his mom's, mom's like, there's people here, or other animals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that scene uh, where we kind of are introduced mm-hmm. to Bambi goes all the way back if we're talking about the history of this production. Uh, So Bambi's design, there's a lot going on with it, but it all goes back, as far as we can tell, to one of my favorite names that unfortunately I don't know that we're going to hear again after this episode, Mm -hmm. uh, Bianca Magali, or Magali. Uh, She had pretty much just been brought into Disney. Uh, She was feeling pretty pushed out by the men, uh, which was definitely a big deal. She was one of the first women there. Uh, and she got a call from the San Diego Zoo saying that one of the deer was about to be born. Hurry up and get here. And she sat and watched and drew for, I think it was 10 hours as this deer gave birth and mm-hmm. as the young fawn just started to kind of explore the world. And that was where we get kind of these early scenes of Bambi curled up with his mom and of Bambi trying to walk and not really figuring out how to work the stilts that are his legs. Uh, All of that seems to go back to that very real event Mm -hmm. of watching this birth and the first early hours of the life, uh, which is just kind of fascinating that so much of it was realistic and that was such a big goal for them. Mm -hmm. Going a little bit further, and there is a lot to do with it, the studio kept two fawns, uh, Bambi and Feline, who could be drawn at any point. Uh, Those were actually gifted to them by, I believe, the main preservation foundation because they were filming, filming kind of, uh, in Maine. That's where Bambi is set. And just in thanks, they were like, here, have two baby deer. Uh, And they were actually able to grow up on set because this movie took so long, uh, which made it so that the Disney animators could really learn what does a freshly born baby deer look like? What does it look like in its awkward, you know, (laughs) adolescent age? How does it get to adulthood? Uh, And that was just a really cool thing that they had the opportunity for. Um, They sketched realistic animals a lot, and they actually had to study anatomy, which was something Mm. that the animators did not like. Uh, They thought it was kind of stupid. They were brought in for cartoons, and now we have to do, you know, animal anatomy. And in a kind of creepy way, Rico Lebrun, who is a major kind of feature in how they designed the animals, actually brought in deer carcasses so that the animators could see, like, the musculature and the skeletons, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of horrifying to me, but I guess I understand it like structurally speaking. So Elizabeth, did you ever have to study the anatomy of a deer? Not deer, but I primarily work with pigs right now. 
<laughs> as my model organism. Um, but my eventual goal is with um, work in conservation. So a wide variety of animals, largely focused on carnivores. <laughs> but um, so I haven't had too much interaction in like a research sense or animal keeping sense with deer be just because they're a native species here in America. So we don't often keep them in a preserve or in a zoo. Um, so most of my experience is just being out in nature or like spending time in the mountains or something. Um, so I get <laughs> the um, interest in studying animals to get the anatomy right. And I mean, it paid off beautifully in their animation and drawings. Yeah. yeah. I actually saw two deer last weekend when I was driving <laughs> home from a friend's house and they were just standing right by the side of the road yeah. and I almost didn't see them until we were very close. Like, <laughs> I, I live in Pennsylvania and when you enter the state, it basically says, you know, deer crossing for however many miles until you leave the state. <laughs> um, but just from my, my, I, I haven't really seen a lot of very young deer, but just in general, I think the adult deer feel realistic to mm -hmm. me, you know, as much yeah, as a drawing is a moving drawing is going to feel realistic, right? The adults just feel like, yeah, that's just a deer. It's very different from the cl other cartoon animals, where like Bambi is much more exaggerated in the features to to play off the baby features of them. But like the mom and the great prince, um, all have those really like it's clear they really studied these animals to get those characteristics down yeah so sorry uh were you saying something oh yeah i was gonna say i feel like the weight like the like there's a weight to especially the adult animals mm -hmm. or the adult deer at least like where they you know i'm thinking of the um even the, the scene where bambi fights the other mm -hmm. um <clears throat> the other buck you know, and they're 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 tussling. And that scene is one just an incredible yeah. animation, and we will talk about it more. But that it feels you know, you can sort of feel the weight of those two animals. Like gravity feels like it's acting on them. Mm -hmm. And for that to just be a two dimensional drawing, like kind of blows my mind as someone who like I've never studied drawing mm -hmm. at all. But like it, there's a certain level which becomes just like a magic trick to me, where I'm like I don't really understand how the your how that person's brain works so differently from my brain that they can just like produce that image. But I'm glad for someone who actually has a lot of experience with animals that still rings true. That makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah, I um I was actually watching this with my parents uh, the other day, and my dad was like. How does animation even work? <laughs> like these are just pictures. And this this movie definitely made me think that a lot. I was like, I mean, computer animation, I get. Like mm -hmm. I have done some video editing. I know how you can like schedule a computer to move things around. But this was just endless <laughs> drawings and that really is just so unbelievable. Um and yeah, like we were saying, I think that especially those older animals really lean into the realism and mm -hmm. definitely you can feel like you had said their gravity uh so a lot of that is attributed to rico lebrun uh the alternative or kind of the opposite of that uh is mark davis who actually created the final design for bambi essentially he said okay body down neck down 
whatever you say. Uh, anatomy, that's cool, whatever. The face needs to be different. So they focused on shortening the snout, making the eyes bigger, and kind of giving baby facial features to the animals, specifically the younger ones. And that was something that really helped to kind of draw people into the emotion of it all. And I think it's the same thing that we saw when they did the Lion King live action. Uh, I say live action <laughs> that way because it was mostly CGI. Uh, because if you have a real lion, it doesn't have facial expressions we connect with. And finding that middle ground was something that Disney was dealing with all the way back in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and I would argue they did it a lot better here than they did in the live-action Lion King. Mm -hmm. But you definitely get this sense that doing it realistically and doing it with depth was a huge goal to this. Moving a little bit further, we have a lot of major features, uh, or a lot of major figures working on this movie. One of the biggest is Tyrus Wong, originally Wong Jen Yao, who basically was kind of pushed out of Disney. He was working there, but he was actually referred to by slurs on a regular basis. He wasn't given important work. Uh, he was very much kind of abused by the studio until they saw his background work. Uh, he's the one who really set the style for Bambi. So those beautiful kind of flowy backgrounds that we're seeing, the way that light works on water and on the, uh, on the greenery, all of that goes back to him, at which point they went, oh, wow, okay, you're amazing, we need you in the higher up places. Uh, unfortunate that for both uh, women and non-whites at the studio, you basically had to be amazing to get anywhere. But it did, it did work for him. He was able to essentially convey emotion through just the backdrops. And they actually found that because of that, they were able to cut the dialogue in Bambi to less than a fifth of the length of Pinocchio's movie. Now, I will say Pinocchio is a longer movie, but not by that much. They really did a lot with his amazing artwork. Unfortunately, uh, he did actually end up getting fired by the studio after the strikes. He didn't participate in them, but he was fired afterwards anyway. But he went on to find work at Warner Brothers, which he was very successful with. Another major figure that often gets downplayed, and I was cheering when I saw that her name was actually in the credits this time, uh, was Retta Scott. So the story goes, everyone left the studio. They went home, they did whatever they did for the night, they came back in, and there was a series of artwork strewn across dress, or, and there was a series of artwork strewn across the desks of a deer being chased by the most terrifying, lifelike dogs anyone had ever seen. And depending on the story, uh, either Walt or one of the higher-ups on this picture specifically basically said, whoever did that is doing better than anybody else in this studio and needs to be recognized. Uh, all of the men were asking each other who did it, only for Retta Scott to say hi. I am a woman. I did that. Screw y'all's assumptions. Uh, and she got brought up because of that. Uh, she actually got a... Uh, she was well known at the studio for her skills at drawing lifelike animals. She was in... Uh, she was specifically helping to develop those animals 
through some of the shorts they made in this long, long period. Uh, and fun fact, or depressing fact, she is the only woman credited in this movie. Uh, but that's better than Dumbo, which had no women credited, despite the fact that we know they were working on it. So those are two kind of success stories we see in making some of the beautiful artwork we had going on here. Yeah, and again, like, I'm, I'm so glad that it's part of sort of our mission on the show to kind of highlight a lot of the people collaborating behind the scenes who may or may not get official credit in the credits of the movie. Um, and one of the other people along those lines was Jake Day, uh, who was a Disney employee and was basically just really offended that they were going to use uh, California mule deer as the <laughs> models for the deer in this movie because the book was from Austria. And he's like, that's not what deer look like mm -hmm. in Europe. The closest thing you're going to get is if you go to Maine, which is where he was from. So he was probably a little bit biased. Uh, but he basically like went to... You know, according to this um, old magazine article, Megan, that you dug up, which I will link in the show notes because it is a great read, first of all. Um, but like he went to Walt and like told him this and Walt was like, we'll prove it. And so he like went back to Maine from California, which, you know, in the 30s, like not, not you know, not the easiest trip to make uh, and took a bunch of photographs, including deer and sort of like just convinced Walt that like Maine should be the setting for this movie mm -hmm. like it it fits the story those deer look like the right kind of deer uh and it it went over well enough to the point where uh Bambi's first sort of public screening was in Portland Maine because it had become such a tie and until doing research for this this episode I had no idea that Bambi was supposed to take place anywhere specific, <laughs> but having having been to Maine, having done some hiking in in Maine, I it, it, it's beautiful up there. So you know, it's it's a perfectly good choice for <laughs> uh, if you're going to draw woods, you could do a lot worse uh, with Maine. Um, you know, and but he he spent he took thousands of photographs, not just of the wildlife but also just of the woods and you know light at different kinds of day spider webs when they had dew on them um you know the different seasons what snow early snow looked like what late snow looked like all of these things to try to give a sense of realism you know and give source material for uh the animators drawing the story to uh, to work off of you know and as we talked about the sort of the four Nile men who were the supervising animators. Uh, Mark Davis is sort of credited with the uh, taking the realistic deer and sort of adding those baby features. He's also uh, one of the nine old men and just one of my favorite Disney people. We're certainly going to talk about him more, but um, he's sort of one of Walt Disney's sort of Renaissance men who he came in during Snow White. He worked on a bunch of different things and like, if there was a problem that nobody else could figure out, Walt would probably give it to Mark Davis. Um, and he goes on to be become one of the first uh, Imagineers uh, at Disney. And he is responsible for uh, large sections of the Jungle Cruise and um, at least half of the Haunted Mansion, uh, the, the, the fun, silly half, at least. You know, but those are other ways where he was sort of bringing personality into ghosts and other animals and things to try to really drive the storytelling while not sort of abandoning all sense of you know realism i wanted to we're probably going to talk about it more but uh, i think one of the standout sequences in bambi is the little little april shower sequence 
Um, Sylvia Holland was one of the major players who was working on that sequence. The score was written by Frank Churchill, who uh, shortly, who had actually left Disney in 1937, but he returned when they were like actually getting Bambi going uh, so that he could work on it. It's just the amount of detail and planning in that scene. You know, the rain is incredibly detailed. Again, uh, I brought up gravity earlier, but again, this is another place where sort of it, that rain feels real. You know, they took pictures of raindrops and enlarged them so they could get like accurate shapes. Um, you know, the ripples were done with a lacquer on the cells. So again, that gives it a sense of depth, even though it's technically still a flat image. There's like an x-ray effect that they used for the light the lightning uh, to make the forest look the way that it does when there's a lightning strike. So that whole sequence is just amazing. Um, there's nothing. I think the little April showers part of this movie stands up to anything we saw in Pinocchio or Fantasia um, with regard to just the artistry behind it and the inventiveness of it. Uh, it's funny. I remember in like elementary school, there was like a, I don't know if you guys had these growing up or were around them or whatever but they were like science picture books so they were like real photographs and they would give like some kind of science information and i remember one was just like nature photographs using like high speed cameras so there's like you know a page where they had the thing where they like they took a picture of the sun at the same time of day in the same spot for a whole year and you get that little like figure eight uh kind of pattern to it and they superimpose it all together but one of them was like these, you know, and the way I remember it at least is like these are some of the first like high speed photographies where we can see like what happens to a raindrop where like, you know, it hits the water and then like there's like a little like perfect sphere of water that like comes back up. Uh, but it's kind of cool to see that the, you know, Disney animators are sort of pushing this forward as much as they can so they can understand how to replicate it to draw it. Yeah, I think that to some extent any of those kind of beautiful nature scenes that we saw in Fantasia are kind of a test run of this uh, Little April Showers scene. I, like I said last time, I always read the research before I go into the movie. So I had read a lot about this scene. I had no recollection of it. And then when it started, I was like, oh, okay, no, I, I can't dispute it. This is genuinely an amazing scene. Uh, artistically, musically, uh, I mean, it was really just stunning. I mean, I always gravitated towards this song, like, and re-watching Bambi, this song hit me like the others, more than the others. And like, as a kid, I played harp for six years. And I remember having this um, large um, book of Disney songs. And I always gravitated towards playing Little April Showers and a song from Mary Poppins, <laughs> Feed the Birds. <laughs> I don't know why those two were the ones, but those are what I gravitated towards. Um, and so just hearing this again, it's been years since I was playing, I, I could almost feel like I could still play it. And it just, it gives like the lyrics and the music, it makes you feel, you feel like you're in the rain. It's not just the scenery, it's how the score is composed too. Yeah, I think that one of the things that's interesting about this period is we get what's called non-diegetic songs, um, where it's not, you know, Snow White singing, oh, I have a wish that my prince will come and da-da-da. It's music that just 
exists for the viewer and not for the uh, audience. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those songs aren't as popular because they aren't as deeply tied in. But I think this is one example of one that works extremely well uh, mm -hmm. for them to just essentially say, hey, this has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> this has no connection to the characters. And yet it's an extremely memorable song and sequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I probably remember this song better than the rest of this entire movie, <laughs> yeah. pretty much, because uh, I have one or two of those, like, I had one, one or two of those Disney song compilation, like, CDs when I was a kid, and, like, this was on there, and I couldn't remember, I could never figure out what it was from, <laughs> but, I, like, I assumed it was from, like, some, like, random, you know, 50s or 60s movie mm -hmm. I, like, hadn't seen, because, again, I'd only seen Bambi, like, one time all the way through, you know, my main memory of, of this movie is probably seeing clips of it in other things more than, like, seeing the movie itself. Mm -hmm. And watching it for this, like, this was the scene where I sort of, like, sat up. You know, I was like, <laughs> oh, like, the animation looks really good. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to talk about the kid voices at some point. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is working. And it really sort of grabbed my attention. And then I was I was just in the movie for the whole rest of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not too far into it. It's maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes at most into the movie. But uh, for me, this was the, like, the turning point where it, like, clicked for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, I mean, this movie is dense. It It's not a very long movie. It's just a few minutes longer than Dumbo was. Uh, but it has a lot in it. I, When I was watching it, I was like, I feel like I've been watching for like two hours, and yet this movie is just over an hour long. And part of that is because there's just so much going on in it. According to a few different sources, there are over a million drawings, approximately 250,000 cells to bring to life this, you know, fairly basic story. And what's kind of funny is that wasn't all of it. There was a lot cut. So there was one day that Disney came into the studio and he was just kind of pacing. People asked him what was up and he said, the movies are losing us money. Is this movie going to lose us more money? And so they had to go through literally everything that had been fully developed, everything that was part developed, everything that was scripted, and they cut out actually a surprising amount. Uh, they cut out about 12 minutes uh, before final animation just to save on costs. And that ended up cutting a lot of stories that might have been really nice moments, but probably weren't as useful for the story of Bambi as much as showing oh my god look how beautiful and amazing we can draw this and you know it's different from live action where you know unless you're cutting out a whole sequence or you're cutting out like a whole filming location cutting up 12 minutes from a live action movie isn't necessarily going to be like one to one the cutting from the budget of the movie uh, whereas in animation it is because that's drawings that don't have to get made that's time that doesn't have to be spent um, and it, it also makes me think, feel like even though it came much, much later, like I, now I'm like, I want to look at this list of cut scenes and watch Bambi two and see how many of them they ended up using in that interquel, I guess you could call it of, of, of Bambi two. Um, <clears throat> probably not this one where the, you know, there was, there was more to the scene of Bambi's mother dying 
Walt apparently was eager to show man being burned to death by the forest fire that he starts. Uh, but that was discarded when they decided to keep man entirely off screen, um, which I think is probably the best choice overall. Um, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I, I like I, I like man being off screen, but I I keep going back to Dumbo where we were like we want the ringmaster to suffer, <laughs> and, and maybe True. we, but Bambi's vengeance or or whatever right. Bambi the retribution that's what we needed. <laughs> In the horror version of Bambi, this is what happens, and that gives right. you ample reason for his revenge beyond what we already see. I feel like we've now justified this non-official <laughs> horror sequel. I mean, not only did they kill Bambi's mom, they also set the forest on fire. <laughs> and they killed a bird. They had that right. nice little sequence. A, a poor bird that got startled. So some of the other deleted scenes, there was a scene from the book where uh, autumn leaves are falling and they're portrayed as like an elderly couple because the they're in the autumn of, of their life. And we do see some leaves, but they don't have any dialogue. That was all cut. Um, there was also be the squirrel and chipmunk that we see at the very mm-hmm. beginning of the movie. We're also going to have more screen time as sort of a comedic duo. Um, but again, like all their dialogue and all their other scenes were cut. Um, there was a proposed sequence where Bambi accidentally swallows a bee, um, which I can't even imagine how exactly that would go and then there was another scene of bambi sort of meeting the great prince after the fire um and like am i am i crazy or do they not mention explicitly that that's his dad he's uh the great prince says son at one point okay Okay. but that's it uh they don't they don't really make that explicit at any point as a kid i was like he's just the big beard that takes care of the herd but like in watching this like i don't know if just being old i'm like all right great prince and we got prince <laughs> then we have little prince they must be related more related <laughs> than the rest yeah i feel like i i kept questioning the lion king which i love that you brought up the circle of life in the beginning ryan i i mean obviously the monarchy of the animal kingdom it's obvious to have those parallels but i wonder how many of these deleted scenes became part of the lion king because when i heard about the squirrel and the chipmunk all i thought was timon and pumbaa okay Bambi swallowing a bee, I've got to be honest, I was thinking about the Magic School Bus episode where they, like, went inside one of the kids to, like, (laughs) defeat his virus or something. (laughs) But I feel like they had a lot of kind of similar narratives of, you know, the young royal accidentally maybe kind of sort of kills one of its parents and then runs away for a while, but then finds its childhood friend and odd similarities there. Um, and I, I just wonder how many of those cut scenes ended up kind of getting brought back around for that other version. Yeah, there's definitely a lot where, you know, by the time you get to the 90s, I feel like there's a Disney formula and like we haven't gotten there yet, mm-hmm. but like we're starting to see a bunch of the pieces. And, you know, I think even Thumper and Thumper and Flower being sort of like sidekicks with large mm-hmm. personalities like really starts to lay some of the groundwork for some of that that comes later. Um, and I think that part of that comes down to, as we always talk about, 
the contemporary reactions and the legacy reactions. Um, in the contemporary, it was, it's a little complicated. We're not 100% sure where it premiered. So according to the Disney Archives book, it premiered in London on August 9th, 1942. And then its U.S. premiere was August 13th, 1942. And that happened at the New York Radio City Music Hall and was the first one since Snow White to be there. It was kind of Disney saying, like, look, we, we still got it. Uh, but then you hear that, you know, it was potentially in, in various different locations. It's a little bit unclear when it fully, fully kind of premiered, uh, but certainly August 1942. Uh, and it had mixed reviews. Uh, it was a bit lukewarm. And when the movie seemed to be kind of not super successful on its own merits, of which I think we've kind of said there are many, uh, they decided to start promoting it as Bambi, a great love story, <laughs> which was interesting to me because a love story is not what I think of when I think of Bambi. Uh, a coming of age story, a mother and their child story. Mm -hmm. I mean, there certainly is a love story going on, uh, but that doesn't seem to be kind of the main thing to me. Uh, so it was interesting that they were trying to draw people in. They were like, hmm, maybe they don't want more mother and child. How about we say love? Uh, and that helped a little bit. It didn't help too much. Um, one of the things that surprisingly helped it a lot more, uh, as we said earlier, the book was banned in Nazi Germany. Uh, so a lot of people <laughs> decided to watch it as like, a snub to the Nazis, which I, I love this. This is such a thing that happened throughout this period. Uh, this happened, especially in Germany. They would like listen to jazz music because that was American music. And they would swing dance to prove like down with, you know, the Nazis. I'm going to do American like dances and music and, and these cultural things that were connected to Jewish people and to black people. And I love that that was what they went. They were like, ah, yes, a movie about a baby deer. That'll teach Hitler. <laughs> so we definitely got uh, a little bit of that going into it. And it kind of created this weird reality where Bambi had a lot of different identities. It was a snub to the Nazis. It was a love story. It was a coming of age story. Uh, it was still pretty short. It was only 69 minutes long originally. Uh, I believe on Disney Plus it's like 72 minutes. Um, very short movie. It was still in the realm of Disney wanting to make money. Uh, he didn't. This was officially a loss at the beginning. It then made up its money pretty quickly after the war. Uh, but it was still seen as pretty impressive, especially like we were saying before with the music. Uh, the film received three Academy Award nominations for Best Sound, Best Song, uh, for Love is a Song, which I'm not 100% sure which song that was. Uh, I think it's during the Twitter-pated sequence. Uh, and then Original Music Score. So it was definitely seen as artistically uh, successful, but I think kind of like we've said with so many of the others, its popular appeal was a little bit lower at that point in time than we would maybe expect given what it's become today. 
Yeah, and I was going to say the Academy should have definitely nominated Little April Showers, <laughs> but either way, it would have lo- it would have lost to White Christmas. I, I think yeah. that was the, the the juggernaut that year. I don't think anything was gonna uh, was gonna deny Irving Berlin that Oscar. And I think when we get to the critical reviews, a theory started to, to form in my mind about about why it was received the way it was received. Uh, so the New York Times claimed that in the search for perfection, Mr. Disney has comparisonly close to tossing away his whole world of cartoon fantasy. And then, meanwhile, the Hollywood Reporter said that reviewers will hesitate to describe it as a cartoon. It's more like a fine painting. His daughters were also upset that Bambi's mom died, which, you know, is basically the key thing that anybody talks about when you bring up this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and Roy Disney kind of blamed the war for Bambi's reception, saying that Bambi was a sweet little story about please don't kill deer when we were talking about killing human beings. And that just didn't sell, which I think is an interesting track because there's, you know, a, there's a lot of movies from this time that are either a call to action or just pure escapism. And I think Bambi keeps falling in this middle ground of not really being enough of either. <laughs> And I feel like it's also too kiddie for uh, mm. some critics and then not kiddie enough for kids. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like, especially the first half, I feel like a lot of critics maybe write it off because at least I struggled with some of the kid uh, voice acting performances because I was like, these kids are just like, not that they're doing a bad job, but it's just a lot of that being the only dialogue for the first half of the movie. And then, them switching to being having more adult voices is also jarring. Um, but I, I feel like there it, it falls in this middle ground of not being people have reservations about showing kids this movie, but then it's not really for adults either because that first section is so childlike. Um, and I think these kind of two halves maybe maybe explain why the mixed reception because it is it is kind of a weird movie to sort of evaluate as a whole. Yeah, I think that it's very, it's a cyclical narrative. It's not a narrative, uh, a linear, a linear narrative as we understand today. I mean, it opens with, oh my God, a new baby deer is born. And it closes with, oh my God, two baby deer were born. Uh, And we do kind of need to see life and death and fear go through all of that. But like you said, I feel like most people kind of pick a side I actually did not mind the child actors. I thought Thumper was annoying, but I was still <laughs> smiling through the whole first half. And mm-hmm. then we see like two seasons go by and I'm like, oh, cool. So he's like a year older, maybe. And then his <laughs> voice is like this. And it was a very jarring shift. Uh, I actually liked the beginning a lot better than the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, but like you said, I think people kind of pick one or the other and kind of look down on the movie for the half they didn't love. Yeah. Um, so did you dislike the first half out of curiosity or was it just the voices that got to you? It, it was just the voices when there was no dialogue or, or it was music. It was fine. And what's funny too, is my only real memory of watching this movie as a kid was loving Thumper. <laughs> so like, it's just, it's just my own, growing up i guess and just being i'm also not a person just due to uh family circumstances like i'm still one of the youngest people in 
the family that I see the most often. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not often around a lot of little kids. <laughs> so like, I may just not be used to it. You know, I haven't watched a ton of like Bluey. Uh, so I'm just not used to hearing kid voices like that. And it, it was just a little annoying where I was like, oh, I like this better when they were not talking. <laughs> but Tucker uh, is but iconic anyways. <laughs> he is. He is. I, uh... He is. And again, this is not to... I mean, all of those voice actors are either very elderly or no longer with us at this point. But this is not a drag on them at all or even the choice to do it. I think it makes sense. I think it's actually a really, again, it sort of adds to the the scientific, almost like realism feel of the movie to have them actually voiced by by real kids. So it, it was just the thing that like when it was first happening, I was like, oh, I... It took me a little bit to get used to, and then I kind of settled in, like I said, once we got to Little April Showers. But I like both halves of the movie. I think there's there's really great parts to both. And I think the movie only really hits the emotional, like, it really hits the emotional beats that it hits because you see the whole sort of, not his whole life, but his whole growing up. Yeah, there's definitely, I, I think it's basically it's not a narrative, it's a life cycle. And so it is mm-hmm. important to see both sides of that. Um, Elizabeth, did you have a preference towards one side or the other? Or did you like the whole thing? I like. I remember the most from the beginning of the film. And then obviously I remember like the big things at the end um, when the hunter is in the meadow. But like the mi- middle ground is where I had forgotten everything about. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I I completely forgot that Feline existed. Uh, yeah, so I think I similarly kind of had the beginning and the end. Uh, and I think kind of going along this line, Ryan, that you were saying, they didn't really know if it was for adults for, or kids. Mm-hmm. So they ended up kind of having a, a redo uh, in the Silly Symphony Sunday comic strip. Uh, they actually ran a three-month-long adaptation of De- they actually ran a three-month-long adaptation of Bambi from July nineteenth to October fourth of nineteen forty-two, and I think, granted, I have not seen all of it, but I think setting it in kind of the the newspaper cartoons gave them the opportunity to say like this is a kids' cartoon, this is an adult's cartoon. And they could break it up by that seriality. Uh, Whereas in one movie, you can't really say, okay, children watch the first 30 minutes, and then you leave and get your parents in here, and they'll watch the second half. If you had asked me before watching it, I would have been like, oh yeah, the last like 10 to 15 minutes are like Bambi grown up. And like, it really like I I think the first half is much more memorable in a lot of ways, or at least it leaves a stronger impression. Um, again, even though there's amazing sequences in the whole second half of this movie, it's funny. The other thing I I kept thinking about, and it 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 has to be because of the same coming of age narrative and the fact that the main character is a deer. But I kept thinking of the stop motion Rudolph, yes. which I've seen. Yes. <laughs> Uh, um, I've probably seen at least once a, once a year every Christmas season from before I could talk. So, like, if anything, like, that is a bigger frame of reference for me. And I kept thinking about, like, you know, because there's also a romance. And, you know, I, I always think about that, that part where, like, 
you know, Bambi was growing up and they do the transition of him looking in the, uh, looking in the water. And then he's got the, the, uh, antlers and everything. And I was like, that has to actually be them ripping off Bambi a little bit. <laughs> uh, cause that's a, that's a fifties, uh, fifties thing. Yeah. I definitely made that connection. My mom, <laughs> my mom loves that uh, Rudolph uh, stop motion kind of thing. And so the moment where he goes, she thinks I'm cute. She <laughs> thinks I'm cute was all I was thinking about when the various like members of their animal group in Bambi were becoming Twitter pated. And like, you know, when Flower gets the kiss from the little girl skunk and then just like his whole body changes colors and, and <laughs> It was very much that, like, dramatic moment. Yeah, I feel like there's all these connections, just like we said Snow White and um, and The Wizard of Oz. We kind of have these odd little, oh, it's deers and romance. Let's see how they connect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and along the lines of the, the legacy of Bambi since its release, um, one of the biggest things uh, is the Disney's True Life Adventures uh, is what they called their nature documentaries, which we'll be talking about at some point this year. I think we'll get to the, at least the first couple. Their nature documentaries, the way that I understand them, they're much more narrative based. So the one that Leonard Maltin cites as Bambi having the biggest influence on is Perry, which is about a squirrel and it has a similar sort of you see the, the baby squirrel, the squirrel grows up, the squirrel finds a a, a partner squirrel. <laughs> um, and But again, as, as I, I haven't actually seen any of them yet, but as far as I understand, they are much more like edited together to give a straightforward narrative to things that are just happening in nature and are not necessarily shown in actual chronological order. Um, but that's one of the biggest... Uh, maybe weird legacies of Bambi as it does sort of inspire Disney ultimately to explore, you know, documentary as a, as a thing. And, and a lot of the true life adventures were shorts uh, and part of Disney's record of winning all these Academy Awards. There's a lot of true life adventure shorts that won best documentary short uh, in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. I definitely think that Disney realized that animals could work kind of through this. I mean, obviously there were animals in earlier ones, but uh, Walt is kind of famous for saying that the deer in uh, Snow White were just sacks of flour with legs, I believe was the <laughs> phrasing. Uh, and so I definitely think he kind of, and the company kind of realized that realism or even reality was definitely a way to go with it, especially because its legacy most of the time here, we've been basically saying what happened in the 40s and then what happened today, like in the 2000s uh, and 2010s, etc. Uh, this one has actually a more complicated legacy because it was growing the whole time. Bambi was a loss originally, but it then started making money very quickly after World War II uh, stopped and they decided to kind of expand with it, which went in so many really cool ways. For instance, one of them, when it was released in India, I believe in the late 40s, early 50s, it was uh, dubbed in Hindustani and was completely rescored with Indian music. So not only did they, you know, make it accessible to other countries, but they really thought of this as kind of a universal story 
that it didn't necessarily need their vocals and their sound. They were willing to say this story and our animation, which is, of course, you know, inimitable, uh, can kind of make it in any culture, which was a kind of cool thing to see that we don't see in many other productions. Yeah, I did notice that this was the first movie we've watched since Snow White that did not have an unskippable warning about uh, insensitive cultural depiction. That was really nice. I I have some critiques, uh, and we can talk about that in a minute. But yes, it was really nice to not have to have that warning at the beginning. Like, hey, remember, this is in the 40s, and we are a bunch of white people doing racist things. <laughs> Yeah, um, and I think that I think that helps with the universality of it. Uh, it was also the first of uh, so far three Disney animated movies to be dubbed in a uh, a Native American language. Uh, so they did an Arapaho dub of Bambi in 1994. Um, it was on the initiative of Stephen Graymorning, who was a professor of Native American studies and anthropology at the University of Montana. Um, and so they worked with the Northern Plains Educational Foundation. Uh, technically, it's only a partial dubbing because they did all the dialogue, but they did not redo any of the songs. Uh, so those are still in English. Um, but it premiered in 1994. Disney uh, donated 2000 VHS tapes of that version to the Arapaho Nation. It wasn't issued again, but it, as of October of last year, it's now on Disney+. Plus. You can actually go and watch the Arapaho dub of Bambi, which is really cool. Um, that wouldn't happen again until 2016 uh, when there was a version of Finding Nemo that was dubbed into Navajo. And then uh, there's also a Hawaiian language version of Moana that was done in 2018. Uh, I don't know offhand if those are on Disney+, Plus, but it is very cool that the uh, Arabaho language version of Bambi is on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, I think that just speaks to how successful it was in different contexts. Uh, maybe in part because instead of relying on the gags that so much of animation did at that time, it was so realistic and it did tap into that so much. Um, going forward to the present, on Rotten Tomatoes, this has a 91% critical score. Uh, audience reviews are a little bit lower, but still positive. Uh, 73% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, 7.3 on IMDb. Um, so it's, it's pretty well, you know, esteemed. It also has been held up in specific circumstances with the American Film Institute. Uh, they put together a list of its 10 top 10 uh, of various genres. Bambi placed third in animation throughout uh, American film. And then in December 2011, the film was added to the National Film Registry as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. This is something we say about a lot of these early movies, but with this one, it definitely makes sense as something that worked so well, as we said, to be able to be kind of moved into these different cultures that it was, you know, able to really grow and thrive. Um, maybe, unfortunately, uh, in January 2020, it was announced that a photorealistic computer animated remake was going into development. So another one of the weird live action, but not live action. I'm not sure we need it, but uh, that certainly seems to be the trend of Disney these days. 
thankfully we haven't heard too much about that since then so i'm hoping it's one that they just put back on the shelf on that afi top 10 animation we've now covered four of the top 10 on this podcast already uh because snow white is number one pinocchio is number two as megan just said bambi is number three and fantasia is number five you know potentially or eventually we will cover nine of the ten with only shrek being the non disney release uh because we will get to the lion king which is number four toy story which is number six beauty and the beast which is number seven and then cinderella is number nine which we will get to relatively soon and then finding nemo is uh was number 10 um so it's very it's very telling i think that you know four of the ten are in this very short period relatively short period of time from one studio and then most of them are much more modern so we are yes we're heading into the disney dark ages spoiler (laughs) alert uh in the coming days or coming episodes um one of the things i wanted to say is that when i was doing the research something that came up a lot uh was actually related to one of the first things we said in this podcast is bambi a horror movie that sounds so absurd in some ways and yet in other ways it doesn't uh i find it funny that it's asked about this but not about snow white which as we said uh was actually inspired by gothic or german expressionistic horror films uh fun fact um but it's actually listed in the top 25 horror movies of all time by time magazine uh time states that it quote has a primal shock that still haunts oldsters who saw it 40, 50, 65 years ago. Uh, Along that line, Stephen King called Bambi the first horror movie he ever saw. Uh, And then uh, a a critic for The New Yorker claimed that she had never known children to be as frightened by scary grown-up movies as they were by Bambi. Um, And I find this a really interesting phenomenon My dad always said, you know, horror movies are one thing, but the flying monkeys in Wizard of Oz are terrifying. Uh, Or people saying the evil queen from Snow White, which we had talked about, uh, or the huntsman in the chase scene. You know, so many of these early films that, as we said, were on those top 10 lists are also really dubious when it comes to genre. Like, there's definitely fantasy here, Obviously, there's the political angle to some extent, but is it a horror movie? I don't know. Uh, this is this is my turning it to you two. Would you term Bambi as a horror movie? I mean, I personally don't think so. If if only because I feel like horror is a mood, and while yes, Bambi's mom's death is shocking if you don't know that it's coming, even though it is pretty well foreshadowed. I, that was something I was paying attention to, like. You know, the whole first scene in the meadow where she's like, there's the hunter and then there is a shot that rings out. Like, it's very, I don't want to say telegraph, but it is really laying the groundwork for what's going to happen later. Obviously, if you're a kid and you don't have, you know, 30 some years experience watching movies, maybe it isn't as obvious. Um, It's also hard to, you know, like, it's almost like, you know, uh, Darth Vader being Luke's dad. where It's like, it's almost hard to find somebody who is old enough to walk through that experience, but doesn't know that that experience is going to happen. Mm-hmm. So 
it's hard to evaluate, but I would say overall, it is not a horror movie. And I don't think that, I actually think there's more horrific elements in Dumbo <laughs> and Pinocchio and Snow White mm-hmm. and even Fantasia than there are actually in Bambi. I think it's more shock than horror, I guess. Mm-hmm. If those cutscenes had been kept in then i'd probably consider yeah maybe it's a horror film if all these animals are being killed if a lot more animals are being killed but like none of it happens on screen the bad stuff um yeah there's no blood there is well yeah all right there's a little blood (laughs) all right (laughs) but it's also Um, a watercolor-esque scene (laughs) If I can briefly make the argument for why it is a horror movie, uh, I, I have two, two small angles. Uh, I'm not sure I a thousand percent believe my argument, but since both of you said no, I have to say yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I want to hear the argument. (laughs) Okay. Uh, so I have, I have two arguments. The first one is it's a classic slasher where man (laughs) is the slasher and we see Mm him kill the bird we see him hunting for victims we see one of the victims is bambi's mom we see that the entire forest full of deer is running away just because man is there Mm -hmm. like these are imposing figures that are all running scared and there are plenty i suppose the big thing is man is not a slasher that leaves bodies for others to find (laughs) uh if man didn't uh take the animals for prizes which i suppose is also horrifying uh i think we'd be finding bodies all over the forest i mean it seems like that's basically what man does everyone's Mm -hmm. whispering no don't go fly that's the worst thing you can do don't go into the meadow um i definitely think that there could be an angle for that all it would take all it would take i'm going jason Voorhees again (laughs) is for them to stumble upon a cabin and they go inside and Bambi finds his mom's head mounted to a wall. <laughs> I That's the first scene of the horror movie. I am almost <laughs> certain. Uh, I think that there's definitely an argument that for the animals, it's a horror movie. And oddly, I think that the concept similar to Darth Vader, that we all know that the mom's about to die, actually helps it as a horror movie. Because, as you said, it is foreshadowed, but I see that as a really powerful three-beat that gives us kind of the uh, fake-out jump scares that are so common in the horror genre. Mm -hmm. You know, we're going into this meadow, and the mom says, I'm going out alone. You stay here hidden. I'm like, is Bambi's mom going to die? No, (laughs) it's all fine. Okay. Uh, We see, oh, Bambi, we've got to run. We've got to run. Everyone runs. Oh, my God. Is Bambi's mom going to die here? No. Oh, my God. Something's happening again. And we're like, yeah, we know this gig. And then Bambi's mom actually dies. And I think if they had literally just shown the body, it would be much better established as a horror movie. Uh, Because I think that knowing that that death is coming makes it suspenseful instead of just shock value. That being said, I think my argument relies on scenes that don't exist uh, to some extent. (laughs) Fair point. Uh, But I think it's intellectually horrifying. I mean, the the big 
the big uh, point of a good monster movie like Jaws was that we don't see the monster, we only see its victims. And I think, I'm going to edit this again. I feel like half of our podcast is me editing Disney movies to fit the genres. (laughs) If Thumper had been killed, if Feline's brother had been killed, and we're just, you know, Bambi starts out with this happy group of friends and they're slowly getting picked off one by one, which (laughs) happened in the book, I think it's absolutely a horror. And here it's just... It's the whitewashed version of the horror movie. (laughs) Like, we see the slasher, we know that people are dying, but we just don't care about them because they're not the main character most of the time. (laughs) I will say the reality of when people hunt using dog can be quite the horror itself because oftentimes, like, instead of just, shooting on the spot the dogs will run and exhaust the animal until they can't run anymore and that's also a terrifying like method of hunting that is insinuated in this movie with the use of the dog chasing and so it's just another kind of horror no i I think this is a good point and i'm I'm gonna bring the lion king up again as another point in bambi being a horror uh, in the favor of, of Bambi being horror because Mufasa's death is tragic because he is saving Simba's life. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bambi's mom's death is senseless because it's not like she jumps in front of the bullet to save Bambi. Like they're both running. Mm-hmm. She's taken out. He makes it out. Okay. Whereas like Mufasa goes down into that Canyon because Simba's in trouble and he needs the help. And then he's, you know, murdered by mm-hmm. his brother. Spoilers. Um, but, <laughs> you know, and I think the impression of, because I was like, let's see, what's that? I'm trying to do math in my head. I was like eight when The Lion King came out. And so, like, seeing Mufasa's dead body, I feel like that was maybe, like, the first dead body I saw, <laughs> at least in, like, a in a theater Mm-hmm. Um, in a movie. I will, like, never forget Simba, like, moving his dad's, like, big paw and everything. So, like, that is more tragic and sad, where I do think that based on the way it's actually depicted from, like, a film language point of view, the death of Bambi's mom does lean more horror. So, I, I think what we're saying here is that the live-action version of Bambi only works if it's shot as a horror movie. Uh, because only then do we get the animal's perspective on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. Snow White gets that amazing, horrifying chase scene when, in the end, the, the hunter lets her go anyway, so she's fine. We should have seen that from, like, Bambi's mother's point of view, like, running and trying to escape. Mm-hmm. And... Also, I mean, you I... get that perspective from, like, the pheasant birds, where there's the one that kind of has that panic attack, and the other's like, don't fly don't fly so it's like that's a perspective of an animal that we see die on basically on screen after having followed their reaction to it yeah i um number one i'm i'm stupid i didn't i felt like there were just two antagonists like there was man and then there were just these dogs that were there yeah. and angry for no reason and I all i needed disjointed. was the man to shout out like uh trapper or something mm-hmm. for me to like connect that because i didn't see True. the dogs as a 
weapon of man. But now that you say that, that totally makes sense. And I just feel really <laughs> dumb. Uh, but yeah, I feel like we, we see it in the birds. We see uh, Feline get chased up the tree. We see, you know, Bambi's mom and Bambi running away from man. I think you definitely have all the hallmark scenes of a horror movie. We just don't get the blood and gore. So now that Disney is uh, occasionally willing to put out R-rated movies, maybe we'll see uh, a very interesting twist on it. Uh, who knows? That's way more our thoughts than legacy, but I just, I really wanted to go down that route because it is <laughs> a really interesting part of the criticism and critiques of this movie. Yeah, and it is definitely part of the legacy. And again, the legacy of this movie is, I think, surprisingly varied and deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, compared to other movies we've talked about, where usually we're like, oh, it's, you know, there's this ride that's based on the movie and they show up in these video games, which does happen here to, a, to some extent. But, um, you know, soon after the release, uh, Walt Disney allowed the characters to appear in fire prevention public service campaigns. So it was only for a year that they you know, used the, because there's the fire in this movie, obviously, and they used Bambi and Thumper to sort of promote, you know, anti don't light fires in the forest people and so that campaign was really successful it only lasted for a year um because that's how long disney let them use the rights for and so they were like oh we need to come up with our own character and thus Smokey the bear was born so like if no bambi then maybe no Smokey bear which is crazy to think about um uh, Bambi and his mom also make a, a satirical appearance in a Donald Duck short called No Hunting from 1955. Um, and they're like startled by Donald's uh, like there's like uh, litter and like beer cans and, and noise and things. And Bambi's mom is like, man, is in the forest. Let's let's dig out. And they just sort of leave, which is, again, another way of Disney sort of. Uh, playing with their own legacy that they tend to do over and over and over again. Um, they did appear in uh, Forest Fire uh, campaigns again in 2006. And then in 1969, there was a roughly a minute and a half black and white animated short uh, created by Marv Newland uh, called Bambi Meets Godzilla. It starts out with the Call the Dairy Cows from William Tell, which is not the name of the song that I would ever recognize, but it's that like, da, 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 like that, like, we all know that that music because it means like very like peaceful, rural atmosphere. And then you just see a, a deer <laughs> being a deer. And then uh, Godzilla's foot just slams into the frame and crushes the deer. <laughs> and there's like a, a, a down chord. And that, that's it. That's the whole minute and a half uh, short and it, it's become quite I guess it has like a cult following it's it's been entered into the Academy Film Archive it was kind of this independent animated short that just ran in a bunch of like independent theaters like they would just put it on before uh, whatever random movie they were showing occasionally they show it at the drive-in that I go to which only shows older movies occasionally because they have like an intermission and occasionally mm -hmm. they'll put that on depending on what else they're showing I think they played it every night when they did their uh, uh, Godzilla Palooza weekend that I went to. That's a, that's a fun little sort of legacy, but 
I think what's really interesting for is how popular or how well known the characters are. Uh, there's no permanent presence of Bambi in any of the Disney parks. So there's no rides. Uh, occasionally, Thumper and his mom will do uh, meet and greets. Like they brought them out really regularly for like the 75th anniversary of Bambi, but they're not characters that show up often. I, also, I was in the research I was doing, they they uh, tend to appear around Easter, so mm-hmm. around the time that we're recording this. <laughs> But, like, they're considered a quote-unquote rare character, that they're not one that you're going to run into as often as, like, Mickey and, you know, the more the more recent characters especially, I think, show up more. But there's sometimes statues or topiary, um, especially in Epcot, they'll do, like, a topiary of Bambi or of Thumper, uh, you know, at different times of the year. And, you know, they'll be in like different you know they'll use their images in different like nighttime you know fireworks displays and stuff they'll use like a clip from bambi or whatever but it's not one that has a you know there's no there's no bambi ride and like i kind of get it like i don't know what that ride would would be like escape Uh, the hunters like (laughs) right (laughs) yeah exactly and that is that feels very intense for a, a a Disney theme park ride that like little kids in theory would want to ride. It's weird and yet understandable. I mean, obviously they put so much effort into realism. So anything they did in the park would be more cartoony uh, mm-hmm. or a horror movie. I think that's kind <laughs> of the, the balance we have. And maybe it works because it is in between those. But yeah, it's really weird that they wouldn't be in the theme park, especially because they do appear in other Disney media. For instance, the characters have guest appearances in the animated series House of Mouse. Bambi is a character you can summon in Kingdom Hearts. Bambi, Thumper, and Flower are all playable characters in Disney Magic Kingdoms. And then, of course, in 2006, the company wanted money and they did make a sequel. There is a Bambi 2. Interesting... Fun fact, I suppose. There is a Bambi 2 in the books. Uh, It's called Bambi's Children. It has nothing to do with the Bambi 2 movie, which is actually in between kind of the first and second halves of Bambi. The book is more about how Bambi functions as a dad with his cousin slash wife. I don't know if I ever mentioned that, but Feline is his cousin. (laughs) Just like Nala is at best Simba's sister and at worst her, his cousin, which are the complications we don't think about with these lovely animal romances. Um, but yeah, so I mean, Disney was not afraid to bring uh, Bambi back out, but I think it had to be in very specific situations that they weren't going to do it willy nilly for something that would kind of break the integrity of the original movie only things that they thought could kind of grow it. Another kind of fun fact as we bring this into the real world impacts is that uh, on December 17th, 2018, there was a prison sentence against a man who is considered to be the biggest deer poacher in Missouri history. Uh, And the stipulation, he had a one year prison sentence. Uh, He was required to watch Bambi at least once a month Every month of his prison sentence, which I think is amazing. Uh, I think we need more justice that is Uh you must watch sad movies. That immediately made me think of, uh, going back into the horror genre, American (laughs) Horror Story Coven, where Queenie made Madame LaLaurie 
who is a horrible racist, watch all of Roots from start to finish. I feel like it's a great way to just be like, look, you are a bad person and you do need to be punished, but also you are ignorant and we're going to fix that right here, right now. It's a little clockwork orange, but I I approve of it in this case. (laughs) Fair enough. There's also the Bambi effect, which is sort of the objection against killing uh, cute or adorable animals such as deer but people, but it, it describes that feeling of people object to killing cute animals, but less so when it comes to, uh, you know, pigs or chickens or other, you know, insects, reptiles, which I think is an interesting psychological phenomenon that it's, you know, we, we want to protect the cute thing. But I mean, I don't have any statistics on this, but I do feel like deer probably kill more people than most animals in the United States. They probably cause uh, a decent purpose. number of car accidents, at least. <laughs> yeah. Let me Google. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, pigs are on the list in the example, but I do think pigs are cute. It doesn't stop me from eating bacon most of the time, but it's not that I don't think about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I research pigs. I still eat bacon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To answer your inquiry... Uh, There was an article posted by the Washington Post in January of this year that said that uh, an estimated 458 animals are killed in physical confrontations with wildlife each year. 440 of those are caused by deer. So uh, deer are... Stop fearing sharks. Jaws lie to you. (laughs) Sharks, by and large, don't want to eat humans. They just get mistaken. They think you're a seal and then they like munch the wrong part. Uh, What you should be fearing are the deer. Watch out for the deer on your roads. Turn on your high beams when you're in a dark area. Ironically, one of my professors posted on Facebook this morning that he had like seven deer in his yard when he came back from a run today. I thought that was like a sign of good fortune since we were doing Bambi today. But now that I have uh, read one clip of this Washington Post article, I'm going to generalize it uh, greatly and say that we should all be terrified of deer. The horror movie is seeming more and more right to me as we go through this podcast. It is also much harder to accidentally hit a shark with your car. You know... Sure, but there's a lot of people in beach at beaches and in the ocean every year. This is true. This is true. Um, but yeah, no, deer are. I, it's funny because I, I not complicated, but I, I have nuanced feelings about hunting. But I'm glad that in Pennsylvania, deer hunting. There are parts of the state where deer hunting is a school. The first day of deer season is a school holiday because so many kids are going to be out with their parents that it's not worth it to open the public schools. Uh, but I'm all in favor of uh, controlled permitted mm-hmm. deer hunting because we've killed all of their natural predators right. off. And the only natural predator left is the car. So like it's, it really is, you know, a public service of keeping the population mm-hmm. under control. Okay. So it is you necessary. Saying- are you two saying that Bambi 3 should be a movie about Bambi just causing havoc on the roadways <laughs> and having to learn to avoid cars or at least win the confrontation if needed? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Elizabeth, uh, yes. back to you. So we've talked about the Bambi effect. I absolutely believe it because I know in the U.S. there's kind of this concept that like we can eat 
beef and pork and stuff. Uh -huh. But whenever we hear about international cuisines where they eat the cute things, we get right. mad. So how often do you see the Bambi effect in your line of work and has it helped animal conservation? I So obviously um, a lot of people have different opinions, but there are actually like instances where poaching in other countries like with deer is useful even in some endangered species cases. I know a while back, obviously these are very specific cases and um, opinions may differ, but in some cases they will, money that poachers um, spend to be able to poach on certain lands, some animals like some like rhino populations, they, that money goes directly to conservation and they tell them they have to select an animal that's already a problem for the rest of them. Um, and so it's sort of picking one that's already harder to deal with and is actually causing some negatives towards the rest and also giving money to conservation in ways. So there are those sides, but obviously no one really likes to see pictures of poaching of exotic species. It really tugs at a lot of people's heartstrings. Um, so it, uh, again, the issues like this are always nuanced and there's very specific like, differing cases of that's not like you know, following the right laws versus illegal poaching are completely different scenarios. But I definitely um, see this effect and it's different in different cultures too. Like I've traveled to a few different countries. I've worked with animals um, in Namibia where you're teaching people that live near these, to us in America, exotic creatures, live in harmony with them. Like farmers can't just always like shoot, like they have livestock to protect. That's a primary source of income for a lot of people in at least Namibia. And so it doesn't always work to say, you can't protect your livestock if you have issues with one of these, a carnivore of some sort. So there's a lot of working with people um, and teaching them ways of coexisting rather than just saying you can't live your lifestyle like you need to at the sake of the animals. It's a lot more of the coexistence and finding ways that work with communities um, in these other regions. But obviously cute animals get a lot of attention. <laughs> in any case, whether it's a poaching case or not. It really, this is going to be a really weird tangent, but I, it, it's a, it's a story that I just really, really enjoy. Chris O'Dowd, the actor was on the uh, Graham Norton show, which is a, a British talk show. And I don't remember what the context is, but there, he was talking about jobs that he's had in the past before he was like a full-time actor or whatever. And at one point he was raising money for, you know, a wildlife foundation <laughs> And he's like, they would always give us like, you know, they would always like tell us like, oh, here's the animal that you're going to protect. It was like some kind of like weird bat or something. And he's like, nobody cares about bats. Like, so he would like make up animals to um, <laughs> like to try to get people to donate money. So he would just like make up an animal that sounded cute or at least like more interesting. And the one 
the one that example that he gives is like he would talk about the tiger swan <laughs> if you would be like oh I, I don't think i've ever like heard of one or, or seen a tiger swan he goes yeah because they're rare that's mm-hmm. why they need to be protected right <laughs> like, um so that is a that is also uh, i think a uh derivative of the bambi effect <laughs> right <laughs> the hope is that these flagship cute creatures will help enough the ones that people don't know so much about <laughs> So I have a related question because I know, you know, I think we've compared this to so many other movies, but I'm going to do one more. I know that after Finding Nemo came out, there was a Mm -hmm. huge problem with people (laughs) wanting clownfish so much that they basically were making, they were taking them from their home environments. Many of them Mm -hmm. were dying because they weren't cared for properly, uh, as well as the fish that Dory is, but I can't remember the name. Uh, so a blue tang. <laughs> yes. Uh, so on the one hand, we have thanks to Bambi. If it's cute, we don't want it to be killed. And on the mm-hmm. other hand, we have people who maybe take the Disney approach too far and say, "Oh my!" Or Easter, uh, as we are now. Right. I want a bunny. I want a baby chick. Uh, you know, Disney kept two fawns. Why can't I? Uh, <laughs> so do you think that with pop culture, there's kind of this fine line between? making us love animals so we don't kill them and making us love animals so much that we accidentally do? Oh yeah, there is. And uh, I mean, I worked um, all through high school for an exotic animal vet in North Carolina and the laws for owning like exotic species are kind of relaxed compared to a lot of other states. Um, The main line that's drawn is just don't take the native wildlife. You can kind of get easier i've always heard it's easier to have a tiger than it is a squirrel in north carolina as a pet um just based off of the rules of a native species that you just go out to your backyard and bring in or i don't know something you get online <laughs> in a sense um so there is a risk and i mean animal trafficking for the pet right is a serious issue um and like I don't know if you can necessarily just blame Disney, but it like it is like a two-sided coin of is this this cute animal is it going to help us or are people now just going to want this as a pet? <laughs> so I think you have to balance the two. But I think with cute animals, maybe the like with more education that comes with the media that it's represented in isn't the ideal approach. <laughs> Yeah, I think at least in its favor, Bambi does has have the thing of, you know, again, maybe not as strong as the book version, <laughs> but it does have the like, man is not helping the situation. Right, right. At least you have that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times uh, on like the top movie villains of all time, I, I can't believe I didn't find it in this. There's been multiple different studies, but almost always in the top 50 movie villains of all time is just man from Bambi (laughs) because we were all traumatized by Bambi's mom dying. So that's a fair point. At least in Bambi, they they fully acknowledge that man is not helpful. Uh, Although arguably in Finding Nemo, we see kind of the same with, I think, Darla, the the little girl who Mm -hmm. just shakes fish to death. Uh, And unfortunately, that didn't seem to help. So there does seem to still be that fine line. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think but finding I don't, Dory... I don't know that a fish can get from... 
Uh, I was going to say, I don't know that a fish can get directly from the toilet back into the ocean. <laughs> that was a lie. That seems like a problem. <laughs> yeah. I know they were worried about finding Dory because clownfish, you can breed in captivity quite easily. The blue tangs, if people want them as pets, are really hard to breed in captivity. So they were afraid that to get those as pets, people would actually take them from the wild instead of from breeding in captivity. So I think they're like, I think like the when Pixar was working on Finding Dory, they were afraid of that being an after effect of Finding Dory. Um, I feel like I remember reading things about people's fears about that because of that specific scenario for blue tangs. Yeah, at least maybe we've learned something over the last, you know, 75 years, <laughs> 80 <laughs> years uh, of media. So so moving into to our takes, since you're our guest, uh, Elizabeth, if, if you wanted to kick us off with your, your overall thoughts about Bambi, anything that jumped out at you while you revisited it for the first time in a while that you wanted to talk about? I mean, I haven't really watched many Disney movies lately, but I just felt this like longing for 2D animation again. And just like, it just felt like the cameras were moving through a watercolor, like the whole film, like just a watercolor painting. And it just had, it gave it such a different feeling to it. Like the lighting, the tones that would change, um, just did so much for it. And that came across as there wasn't much dialogue, but I still paid really close attention because of how beautiful everything was. Um, and so I kind of just had nostalgia for that style of animation, I think, for most of the time I was watching it. Yeah, it's, I mean, one of the many reasons why I originally wanted to do this podcast was kind of spending more time looking at, at these movies. And I feel like the stories are often so familiar. You know, mm -hmm. there's, there's obviously a lot of little things and there's things that we look back on differently now. Uh, but I think, you know, for me, I appreciate them in a whole different way, uh, you know, with the artistry behind it as an adult than I ever did as a kid, where I was really just focused on like following the story mm -hmm. and, and understanding it. And this was, again, I only really have one strong memory of ever actually watching it, but I remember kind of being a little bored by it, which I mean, I think, I think makes sense mm -hmm. to me as a kid, but watching as an adult, I was, this was one I was sort of expecting to be like, not a chore to get through. Like Dumbo was kind of a chore for me. Um, even though I sort of, I do respect what it is ultimately, but it's just, it's very sad the whole way through. And I was sort of bracing myself and I really ended up um, appreciating Bambi a lot more than I really expected to, which was really, really kind of nice overall. Yeah. I, um, I, I think it's no surprise to people who have been listening to every episode that I have basically had worse opinions of every movie that we've watched. <laughs> uh, because you started so strong with Snow White and then it kind of, you know, was complicated from there. Uh, I, this movie, there were, I have issues with it. Um, there are a few specifically things with gender that are complicated in this movie. But the artistry is just undeniable. I, I think, I mean, like you said earlier, that soaring in scene from Pinocchio marveled me. And this whole movie to me felt like mm -hmm. on the same level, technically. And it's just a sense of artistry and uniqueness. 
I mean, these days, Disney is Disney, and we kind of know what to expect from it. And to some extent, there was something magical in the fact that all of these movies, as many connections as we'll draw, were so different in these early few years that you just... I kind of see this film as a culmination of all the good things they did in the seven years they were writing other movies. Um, you know, it's so, so talented visually. Um, I think that its biggest struggle, well, was that it was made in the 1930s and 40s. Um, other than that was, was that it wasn't 100% sure how much of the political angle to put in there. And so I think that the story suffers occasionally because they were trying to go between it's a story about this nice deer and this is a story about fascism and anti-Semitism. Because <laughs> uh, that, that message definitely gets muddled. Um, but I think artistically, it's, it's hard to debate. This is just one of the mm -hmm. best movies they've ever put out. Yeah, and, and I was really surprised by the different, like, not visual styles, but the different techniques. Like, we we, you know, we talked about the little April shower sequence mm -hmm. and just the amazing details, like, throughout this movie, but especially, I think, in that sequence. And again, that, that stag fight where, is it the best look that Bambi is getting into a physical altercation with, with, with another... I guess boy is the, is probably the right way to say it over um, over a mate, but that is that is how deer behave. Mm -hmm. But the way that that's done, where it's almost like these like splashes of color over the silhouettes of them, that like really I don't know, like it like makes the scene feel more violent somehow, mm -hmm. like more you know it, it it's it's more impressionistic. I guess there's a lot of impressionism. I feel like throughout this movie in terms of there's a lot of detail and that detail sort of fades the further you get in the background into that sort of watercolor feel. And the way that the way that color is used throughout the whole movie, one of the reviewers, and I don't remember which one, but pointed out, you know, in the sequence where uh, man shows up in the meadow, there's a lot of yellows and yellow is like a, a, a color associated with fear. And so it, it's communicating on that emotional level through the visual even more, just as much as through what's actually happening on the screen. It's like creating that emotional sense with the color, with the music. You know, I really do feel like this is one where all of the elements come together. And I feel like doing Fantasia first made them confident to cut out all that dialogue because, you know, Fantasia, none of the sequences really have it. And, you know, I could see sort of the, the Rite of Spring segment of Fantasia, especially with the very generalized story of evolution <laughs> that gets depicted. I could see that come through here where, you know, we talked about how, you know, Walt was like fascinated by science and that kind of bleeds its way into this movie in a really interesting way. I, I stand by my Fantasia argument though, that Disney has not yet figured out how to do fire. Because <laughs> it, it was a great sequence emotionally, mm -hmm. but we have these gorgeous images. Uh, again, thank you, Tyrus Wong, so much. They're, it's so stunning. And then all of a sudden there's just one little fire, three little fires, ten little fires. Oh no, it's fire. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that was probably the, the weakest point artistically for me. Because I just don't think they had the special effect they needed yet. But I definitely see the, the musicality tied in with the artistry, tied in with 
the idea that emotion can be portrayed without any words. Really, all of that, you definitely see how Fantasia made this better than it would have been had it come out when it was originally supposed to. Yeah, and I think all those elements are why, you know, Bambi's mom's death is so impactful, especially to kids, because I feel like kids, again, not having a ton of experience on my own with kids, but just the sense that I get from people I know who are parents and knowing the kids that I do know, I feel like kids watch movies in a way that is very almost like subliminal. Like they, they understand it before they know how to articulate that they understand it. Mm -hmm. And they, especially when it comes to visual storytelling, like it's, it's having this emotional effect on them without them having to understand why that's happening or the implications of it or the causes or anything. Like they just know in that moment of like, this is scary. This is sad. This is happy. And like, this movie nails that so perfectly. Yeah, I will say, as much as I argued for, oh, let's have the horror movie uh, version of it, <laughs> I think that it's really powerful in showing death to kids in a way that is how they would experience it. Mm -hmm. Like, sorry, Simba, but most kids aren't actually going to be responsible and find Mm -hmm. their dad's body and for those who do it is a horrible thing and i am terribly terribly sorry but most kids it's just one day mom is there and the next day mom isn't and somebody is telling you that your mom isn't there anymore and so i feel like that really hits how kids experience death really well uh i will always joss whedon's many indiscretions aside I will always say that Buffy's episode, The Body, is one of the best takes on grief and death. And Anya has this great little speech where she is talking about how she doesn't understand human grief because Joyce likes, I think it was iced tea, Joyce likes iced tea. So now I see iced tea and I think I'll get some for Joyce, but Joyce isn't here anymore. And that doesn't make sense. And that very kind of primal un misunderstanding of mom was here and now mom isn't here is actually very well done in the fact that we don't see Bambi's mom's body. We don't see, you know, Bambi kneeling in a pool of blood. Mm -hmm. We just see Bambi's dad finally show up for once in his life and <laughs> come in and say, I'm sorry, your mom isn't here anymore. You have to find a way to live without her, even mm -hmm. when that seems impossible. Uh, Not that I'm going to do anything to help you about that, but... <laughs> well, I think Bambi, too, to some extent, shows, like, him kind of helping. It does. Ish. <laughs> Obviously, that came out, like, 2006. 50, 60 years later, so that didn't really... I mean, I get that in the 1940s, you couldn't have an absentee father because really involved fatherhood hadn't been invented. Also, before. most were absent because it was wartime. <laughs> True. Right. This is also a great point. <laughs> so I'm going to take that as my segue into what I don't like about this movie. Uh, otherwise known as the section of each episode where Megan tells you all of the politically incorrect things that happen <laughs> in movies from over 50 years ago. So it's mostly gender and sexuality things in this movie. But Flower is deeply queer coded. He literally pops out of a bunch of flowers. Bambi calls him Flower and he goes, oh, he can call me that if he wants to. And he's blushing. And it's very much set up that 
Flower has a crush on Bambi. I, I think mm -hmm. that's not even subtext. That, that seems to be the text. <laughs> but then Flower is the first one to fall for a girl. So either we're having a conversion narrative or we're just acknowledging bisexuality, which I don't think is what they were going for. But, you know, <laughs> we could take it that way. But then he names his son Bambi. So there's definitely some weird stuff going on with Flower and Bambi's relationship that I definitely, in a modern interpretation, want to see fleshed out because there was something going on there. And that led into what I disliked in the second half, which was the extremely heteronormativity when it comes to being Twitter-pated. Because the owl literally tells these young boys... One day a woman's going to come up to you. She's going to ruin your life. She's going to bat your eyes at her eyes at you. And everything is going to be terrible from then on. And they're like, no, it'll never happen to me. And then all the girls have to do is exist. And suddenly the men are just head over heels. Immediately. So we, don't, we don't get these like complex falling in love stories or even a simple falling in love story. It's just, I'm a deer that wants nothing to do with girls. Oh, there's a girl. Okay, I'm in love now. And willing to fight this other deer for her, who, when he seemingly hasn't seen her for years. It's very weird. It's very uh, set up that women are dangerous to <laughs> men's boyhood, I guess. That women have no substance. They just exist to be mates. Uh, and I understand that arguably, in the animal world, we don't see... <laughs> the you know fancy conversations but there are courtship rituals mm -hmm. various species have different ways of trying to attract mates and it's not just one day a boy will be saddled with a woman and that's the rest of his life which seemed to be the owl's narrative here so as much as i enjoyed him being the grumpy that i always expected from snow white he still had this needlessly misogynistic view that, you know, men's lives are best when men are on their own, and then occasionally women come in and ruin everything. <laughs> Which, to be fair, might be connected a bit to the uh, studio tensions over gender at the time. Uh, but it was just a very kind of jarring thing for me to see that women were so, so negative in this. Especially when I think, I think we kind of look back on this movie as having more women in it than it does. I mean, obviously there's Bambi's mom, but I didn't realize until watching it this time that Bambi, Thumper, and Flower were all boys. I don't know why, but when I was younger, I assumed that at least one of them was a girl. Maybe wishful thinking on my part. But it's a very kind of masculine story about what happens when, you know, women get in the way. And that's... that's that is the one thing keeping me from saying this is my favorite Disney movie so far. Artistically, it knocks everything else out of the park. But it's just uncomfortable. <laughs> just, you know, it's it's like Grumpy being needlessly misogynistic mm -hmm. or the centaurs and the centaurettes matching by color where it just seems like it's being over the top in doing things it doesn't need to do to be misogynistic and and racist and sexist and all of these things and i get that it's the 40s and things have changed but it just seems unnecessary to me i don't know that's that's my uh take that's my feminist rant about bambi <laughs>
I don't know about the courtship rituals of any of these animals in real life, but I would have liked to have seen some acknowledgement of some kind of courtship ritual beyond just these two stags are going to fight each other. I will say they kind of did that for the birds that had no other personification, though, because <laughs> they had like birds dancing together, at least. That's true. Which was like more than they showed for the main characters. <laughs> yeah, because I think uh, the the female skunk just bats her eyes, I think. Yeah, she, uh, she, she like appears in the flower bush, her eyes. And then I think Thumper's girlfriend gives him a kiss. Yeah. And then I think Feline just appears. Right. And is like, this I am girl, you like are the boy. the most, like, shoehorned in scene of all of them. It was, like, felt so rushed. Like, they kind of started something with Feline because he, they knew each other as kids. But they didn't work with that later on. They're like... This could have just also been a new female deer, too. None of these count as as great romances right. in my mind. And I think marketing the movie that way is deeply weird. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I think if it had just been marketed as Bambi, mm-hmm. I, I probably wouldn't have noticed it as much. But when they are marketing it as the greatest love story ever... Which one? <laughs> how is this a love story? <laughs> Like, just because there happens to be males and females and there's babies at the end? <laughs> it checks out. <laughs> also, if the cycle just continues, next there'll be three fawns. <laughs> I'll put that ah, there. Yes. We they go from one to two. It's just going to continue it's, like that. It's a, it's a subtle, a subtle uh, attempt at showing population <laughs> right, uh, right. being out of control. <laughs> this is why hunting can be good. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we get the giant, you know, deer versus cars narrative right. of Bambi 3. We're going to see that Bambi's, you know, ancestors have multiplied so much right. that it's... A- now maybe we need to revisit this. <laughs> <laughs> Before we wrap up uh, talking about Bambi, because we do have one more segment uh, on this episode, Elizabeth, Megan, any other final thoughts on, on Bambi that you wanted to share? Oh, I have one because I know that there is one person listening to our podcast who just loves learning the etymology of things that I tell you about every uh, week. Thumper says, uh, if you ain't got if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. And I heard that my entire life. I thought that was the golden rule. I thought it was in the Bible. And turns out this is the origins, everyone. Bambi is the origin of that phrase. There's evidence that there are somewhat similar things before, but like the specific phrasing and the way that it was structured, which to me was a fundamental part of like learning manners when you were growing up, uh, does come back to the original Bambi. So that's your fun little uh, origins of the phrase moment for this uh, episode. Note that eating your greens wasn't a line that got caught on to popular (laughs) culture. (laughs) Cause they're yucky. They're yucky. <laughs> I do like I I do like when Thumper is like I need to make sure Bambi knows that I came up with that last line. Right. I need to get credit for this this comedic genius I have. I will meet, say, or does anyone else want to actually meet Thumper's dad after all this fantastic advice he clearly has to give? I I was so annoyed by Thumper, but he <laughs> feels very much like a small child. And I would oh, love yeah. just a short, like, sitcom-esque style, like the life of the Thumper family. 
especially I want to meet Thumper's dad, but I also mm -hmm. want to know more about Thumper's wife because at the end we <laughs> learn that all of Thumper's children also thump, and that's got to be an annoying household to be in. <laughs> <laughs> or they become tap dancers. We don't know. <laughs> ah. But I, I was gonna say maybe they start stomp. <laughs> Love that. Yes. <laughs> Just it's but it's it's thump. Yes. <laughs> there we go. Bravo. Uh, I know it's I know it doesn't jive with the aesthetic of this movie, but in, in my head for some reason Thumper's dad has an eye patch. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. Now more I need like... to see a bunny with an eye patch. <laughs> a rabbit, I guess. I was definitely thinking more like the rabbit with the wristwatch from Alice in Wonderland. Like, Thumper, we're going to be late. Thumper, you need to eat your greens. So as I mentioned, we do have a a, a bonus segment on this episode because uh, this is actually the final episode of our inaugural season of Dream With Mind and Heart, uh, which I entitled The First Five Features, even though it includes uh, at least six movies because uh, The Reluctant Dragon, again, kind of doesn't and does not count. Um, but I think as we've sort of illustrated, hopefully, over these episodes, these movies do feel like a piece together. And what's going to come after is going to be very different. Um, so there's going to be a lot less uh, more movies like The Reluctant Dragon that have live action and animation uh, often together. There's going to be a lot more movies also like The Reluctant Dragon uh, or Fantasia that are composed of smaller segments put together. Um, a lot of that has to do with the outbreak of the war and budgets and things. But that'll be our second season, which I've entitled War and Packages. Uh, back when I made up the original schedule for this podcast several years ago, actually. At the end of each season, uh, I want to make sure we check in and just see what our overall feelings were. Megan, you, you already sort of talked about it a little bit. What is your favorite movie that we've covered on the show so far? If it was not for the forced mating, it would be this. Because of that, uh, I'm going Snow White. It's not as amazing technically uh but it is i mean I, it, it's not like a hot take that snow white is a good disney movie i think it just had kind of the best of each part it had a good story it had good art good new technical developments uh and despite a few grievances i think that it if i were to give each of these elements like a score out of one to ten i think it would have the highest score it, it might not be the best in every category, but it's the most consistently good, in my opinion. What about you? Uh, yeah, for me, it, it's going to be Fantasia. I, I feel like there's a problematic elements aside. I do think there's a there's a pinnacle there that is really never reached again. Bambi does come very close in, in some regards, but the way that it blends together the way that it draws on music to tell a purely visual story, I find just incredibly fascinating. And it's it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, I also love Snow White very much. Again, Bambi, as I've mentioned, was kind of a surprise to me uh, watching it for this episode. I didn't expect to love it as much as I ended up loving it. Uh, Elizabeth, you, you can chime in if you want to know how familiar you are with the early Disney <laughs> feature film canon. But if you, if you have a, an early favorite, even if it's not one we've covered already, you can, you can feel free to throw that in there. <laughs> I mean, I'm always partial to the 90s ones, but that's the ones I've seen the most. So of the Fair early enough. ones, That's, probably yeah. still Bambi, just because, again, I'm drawn to the animals 
I read Warrior Cats books as a kid. So I like the personified animal stories. <laughs> Those just keep my attention as a kid and now, let's be honest. <laughs> we will definitely have to have you back for future animal <laughs> movies. I'm thinking especially of Fox and the Hound, which yeah. is a, a, a tough watch, but a, <laughs> right. but a good one, I think. All right, Megan, so your, your least favorite so far. Ooh. Um... Dumbo. I, I feel like we kind of said that uh, when we were filming that episode. It, it, there's nothing... Well, there's things wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the story, strictly speaking. I just feel like there isn't enough there. Like, it, you can tell that this is the movie they were trying to make cheap and quick. And there are definitely some elements that didn't land... And then, of course, the blatant racism, which, you know, is very hard to watch. So, yeah, I think Dumbo has to be my least favorite. Yeah, same for me. It's just it's a movie that, you know, as I think I said on our last episode, I, I respect it. You know, and, and Pinocchio is one that I also respect more than I enjoy it. But I enjoy Dumbo less than I enjoy Pinocchio because at least Pinocchio is very engaging to look at. And there's just not that much there and then the story of Dumbo is is so melodramatic the problematic elements are so prevalent that those two things together just really do kind of sink it for me um and it's probably it's not one I ever plan on on going back to like it's not what like Pinocchio there's going to be a time where I'm like oh you know what I haven't watched it in a while I just want to go look at it again and Dumbo doesn't have anything that's going to really pull me back to it What's something you've learned or just a, an overall takeaway that you've learned in, in doing these episodes and putting this research together about, you know, either Walt Disney himself or the, the history of Disney or, or just, you know, something that has sort of come to light for you in, in doing the show so far? I, I have learned so much about the world of Hollywood in this era. I've done a lot of film history before, but you usually kind of only cover like the war films from this era. So it's been very interesting as a whole. I guess my takeaway is going to be, I was always told that if there's a famous quote and you're trying to figure out where it comes from, it's either Shakespeare or the Bible. And my addendum to that is, or a Disney movie, because <laughs> there have been so many that we have kind of found that really originated in these movies that just became so deeply ingrained in pop culture. There's there's too many things to say that I've learned from this, but that's going to be my, my key takeaway, that Disney deserves its name on the list of most word and phrase capturing. For me, it, along those lines, but a little a little bit different, it's I've never watched the as many times as I've seen them. I've never watched these in chronological order before. And then so doing the research of trying to understand the story of Disney and then actually seeing the progression of watching the shorts that we talked about in our first episode and then watching Snow White and then watching, like just watching that progression and that development kind of unfold over the last couple of weeks as we've been recording has been, has been really just enlightening. And it really, I think reinforced how much of a leap Snow White was that I never really, like I knew cause I had read that, you know, before, but I never understood it. And I think I've under, I understand the progression and and how these movies sort of came to be in a way that I, I definitely didn't before. I definitely get that. I think there's 
you know, just doing the research and seeing how one goes to the next. And we can specifically say, you know, thank God for the multiplane camera or for the art and paint girls and, you know, our ink and paint girls. It's just amazing to be able to do the research and, and watch the movies in a row and see all that's developed from them, which leads me to the last question, which I'm going to ask you first. So we talked a couple times this episode about like the Disney form formula, because I think today we kind of have this understanding of what Disney is. And as a quick side note, part of that is the opening with a storybook, which we haven't seen in two or three movies, but will be returning eventually. But given that this is kind of before that formula existed, how do you kind of feel about these first several films legacy as classics of Disney, of animation, and really just of American cinema as a whole? Yeah, I think I think Snow White, Pinocchio, Fantasia, and Bambi especially um, hold up in, in artistry. Obviously, there's cultural issues that, that don't hold up, but I think in terms of understanding the medium of animation and I think understanding... Uh, how America sees animation, especially, I think they're, they're hugely important and they really are the building blocks of everything that would come later. They just aren't quite all put together yet. And I think the other thing that's sort of missing and, and I, I am not a theater person, Megan, I know you're much more of a theater person there than, than I am. Uh, not that I don't enjoy it. I'm just, my knowledge is, is very shallow on that. But I almost feel like the the missing the only missing piece of this formula is that sort of Broadway sensibility that comes about in the 90s where then you get the like everything is structured around the songs where it's like the I want song and then you get like the villain song you get you know like the there's like other set pieces and songs are reprised where like there's little bits of that here and there but it, it's not structured that way like you know there's no you know, Bambi being like, I want to grow up to be the big prince of the forest song, you know, and um, <clears throat> I think that's the only piece that's missing. But I feel like most of the other pieces are here in terms of the the Disney formula. And I think, you know, when when people praise like Studio Ghibli movies for the way that they look and the way that like they you know, draw food, especially I, I always think mm -hmm. of. Like there's elements of that in here, you know, in, in the dwarf's cottage and, and all those little tiny details with all those different, you know, mugs and, and cups and things. And um, it really kind of, you know, Disney is really pushing. They're really on on the like bleeding edge of animation. They're in, they're inventing the stuff as they go along. And some of that really does filter out worldwide, I think. Definitely. I think for me... In kind of a similar vein, one of the things that has been happening so much in this podcast uh, that isn't really in our notes, uh, but that keeps coming up is, okay, let's watch Snow White. I keep thinking of Wizard of Oz. Okay, we're watching, you know, Bambi. I keep thinking of The Lion King. Okay, we're watching The Reluctant Dragon. I keep thinking of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And in some of my film studies classes, essentially we talked about, like, we watch these old movies and we think they're boring because they're full of tropes, not realizing that they are why we have the tropes. Um, and I think that that's definitely true for these movies, that they created the raw material that so much of American cinema and certainly animation has grown out of. 
Uh, and there's definitely bad things in it. And unfortunately, some of that has grown with it. There are things that are understood to just be, oh, that's just part of cartoons that are racist and were racist, but just came because that's where it started. And that's, of course, the negative side. But I think to some extent, they're most successful in that they have made other movies do it better. I mean, so many of these are still great today. They do hold up. I'm not arguing that they don't, but that they were able to create kind of a, a field of cinema that didn't exist before so that all of the great future movies had something as inspiration. I don't know if that came through at all clearly, but hopefully my idea was somewhat communicated there. <laughs> I, I I think that makes sense. I, 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 I follow you completely in terms of we had to start somewhere and these guys are, are making it up as they go along for better and for worse uh, and all the things that come with it. Um, <clears throat> and I think we'll see even more of that in our second season, uh, which, like I said, uh, I've called... Uh, war and packages uh, because they're, it's wartime and there are what Disney has called the package films. Uh, so we will be starting with uh, Saludos Amigos next week and then we will have nine episodes uh, in our second season and we will wrap up that season with uh, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, which is the last of the package films for a while at least. Um, <clears throat> and there's a couple uh, in our second season that I've never seen before. So that'll be uh, a fun experience uh, for me on this podcast where I have, I can't remember if it's make my music or melody time. One of those I have not seen before. Uh, we'll also be covering uh, so dear to my heart, uh, which is a movie I know nothing about and have not seen before. Um, and, you know, uh, I also have not seen victory through air power, even though I've been meaning to watch that for a number of years. So there's, there's a, a of several of those uh, movies that are going to be new to me, which as a sort of, you know, having more of the growing up with Disney, it'll be a different experience for me to talk about movies that are brand new to me. Uh, and then as a reminder slash warning, we will also be covering Song of the South. Um, and so Megan and I are both uh, re-listening in my case, and I think it's new to Megan, listening to the You Must Remember This season that Karina Longworth did about Song of the South. Um, so if you want to prep for um, that episode, uh, you can start that now. Just want to give you all advance warning that that will be coming in the next few weeks uh, and we will do our best to talk about it. Um, I've seen it once before in college out of curiosity because uh, that's when it became really easy to obtain things that you couldn't obtain elsewhere on the internet. Um, and it is readily available out there on the um on on the internet high seas shall we say if you want to go looking for it it's it's pretty easy to track down um it's obviously not available to watch in this country in any official capacity uh but i just wanted to, since we're talking about the upcoming season i just wanted to provide one more reminder that that is something that is coming up and it's something you may want to prepare for if you decide to watch because i think for i think this is a case where understanding uh, the context of it and what you're going to see is going to be very helpful in actually uh, digesting that movie. So, yeah, I um, I'll talk about this more when we get to that one. But I'm relatively sure that I was shown Song of the South in elementary school as just like a good movie. And I am, if you can't tell from my voice, I am not that old, which is kind of horrifying. 
So we'll get into all of those complexities uh, very soon and hopefully do it with the respect and care that is needed. Yep. Uh, and so on that note, uh, if you want to if you want to take us out, Megan. Sure. So I wanted to just say before we close, thank you again to Elizabeth for joining us for this uh, episode. It's our first episode with a guest and we think you've done a wonderful job um, and are just so happy to have you here. This was a blast. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thank you very much. And your uh, your love of Bambi, as well as your professional <laughs> insight, was did actually, I feel like, add a lot to, to this episode. So th thank you for joining us. <laughs> for all of you listening out there, next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, as Ryan said, we will be beginning our second season by joining Walt and friends on a trip to South America, where we will say, saludos, amigos. I don't know Spanish. In the meantime, uh, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. And thank you to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork and Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song.